Good morning, Three Rivers Church. And pray with me, please. Father, we thank you so much for today, and we thank you for um, this, our most vital holiday on this Christian calendar where we look forward to the apex of created history where the eternal Son of God, Creator King Jesus would come and He Himself be the sacrifice He Himself demands and die in our place for our sin and rise to secure salvation for all who will repent and believe from all nations. And so we celebrate that and our hearts overflow um, with a thankful theme that you have done it. That you have done it. And so, Jesus, we pray now that all of that would rule over the atmosphere of this room. That you would crush any fleshly thing that sets itself up against that glorious, transforming reality. And Holy Spirit, bring our minds and our hearts into line with your purpose. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's all about Jesus. For today and next Sunday, we're going to talk from the Gospel of John. Uh, and then we're going to start after that through uh, studying 16 weeks on 16 verses uh, that work us through the entire storyline of the Bible and point us back to this glorious biblical reality of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for us in our place, for our sins. So amazing, amazing weeks coming up here in the life of Three Rivers Church. Today we're going to look at John chapter 1. Through John chapter 19, and yes, we are going to cover 19 chapters of the Gospel of John. Not in full detail. I wouldn't mind doing that, but you would leave me at lunchtime. But today we're going to cover John 1 through John 19 and tie it together with the theme that Eric actually pointed out in the Lord's Supper. If you will, hold your place in John chapter 1, uh, and, and, and you can flip over to John chapter 20. Verse 30 and 31, where John states his purpose. Uh, He states why he is writing the Gospel of John. So that you can, with the right lens, understand everything he's saying in every chapter. Right? So he tells you his purpose. And so we want to interpret everything John writes through the lens of his intention. And he states that in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, that is everything he has written, these are written so that, purpose clause, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. So what's John's mission? He wants you and I to believe that Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. That's his goal. That's his aim. So everything he says is with the aim of us believing that Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament, the Son of God, and that subcategory purpose, by believing you may have life in his name. So John's intention is we would believe, and as a result of that belief, there would be life birthed in us. Whether a person who is not in Christ is awakened to life by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, or whether we who have believed in Christ and are following Him are encouraged and strengthened by the continuing work of the gospel. John's aim is our belief and life in that belief. 
And so with that aim, we want to look at John 1 through John 19 so that next week we're ready to celebrate what we know is coming, the celebration of the resurrection of the eternal Son of God that we might have life through our belief in Him. So John chapter 1 through John 19. John is an evangelist and he wants us to believe and have life. So what did he say? What did John say that would make that happen? And what do we see? And how do we obey it? John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, John puts on display Jesus as the eternal Word of God who has come to put God's glory on display. Marvelous theme. Marvelous theme throughout your Bible is God's Word. God's Word. God spoke and it happened. God speaks His Word and it happens. Thus says the Lord. God's Word, God's Word, God's Word. And John comes to John 1 and does this amazing thing. Where, remember, His purpose is that you may believe He is that one. And that by believing you have life in His name. So what does He start with? He starts in John 1, 1 to 3 by saying, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then He tells us in verse 14 what that accomplishes. And the Word, same word from John 1, 1 to 3, the Word became flesh. God. The creator of all things became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, he uses an interesting word here. It's a word that in, in the Old Testament meant to tabernacle or to put up a tent. That ring familiar? There was this thing that happened when they came out of Egypt. They made a tabernacle. God would meet with Moses. And that word, who's the creator of all things, God became flesh and he tabernacled. He took on the tent of flesh and He was among us. We have what? Seen His glory. So John wants us to believe and by believing have life. So he starts by saying the God of the Old Testament, the Creator of all things, that God that was rebelled against in the garden has come and He has made His dwelling among us and we got to see glory Put on display. Now a little snooty philosophical information here. John does something that's not so evident to the eye. I'm going to share it with you real quick. John redefines Plato and Aristotle in 14 verses. Boom. You're like, I don't know who Plato and Aristotle even are. Okay. I will tell you real quickly. Plato and Aristotle are two Greek philosophers who really set basically the outplaying of basically your worldview. Plato was from the school that believed truth was revealed from above. They called that the Logos. And the Logos was this undefined, deified concept that revealed truth. Aristotle, who was a student of Plato, believed that his teacher was actually only partly accurate. And that truth was primarily discovered from observing order in creation. And there's a painting in the Vatican in which Plato is pointing up and Aristotle is holding his hand down like that, illustrating their worldview. And John, being a Hebrew who's been Greekified, called Hellenists, says in the beginning was the Logos. 
The one you believe reveals truth. Let me tell you who He is. He's Jesus. The one who reveals what is true is none other than the one who came and dwelt, Aristotle, among us. He came and He took on flesh. He's observable. He's touchable. Thomas even stuck his finger into his wound. He's alive. And so the Logos revealed Himself and He also came and took on flesh so we could see Him and know and observe truth. So what does John tell us in chapter 1? He tells us Jesus is the truth. He is that Logos and He's that one we can touch and observe and realize He is that one. Wow, we don't even need the other chapters. And we've got enough in chapter 1 to know John's purpose is you believe and by believing have life in His name. And if you have seen the eternal Son of God because the gospel has been preached to you and you believed upon that, you've seen glory. And so John tells us in chapter 1, Jesus is that God. Chapter 2, John moves on to do some pretty cool things. He shows us Jesus' glory Practically, we John tells us in chapter 1, he's put his glory on display. In chapter 2, he gives us an example of that. And remember in John 20, 30, and 31, he did a lot of things that John didn't write down. But he said, the ones that I did write down, I wrote so that you'd believe. So he showed us his glory. In chapter 2, he gives us an illustration. This is Jesus' first recorded miracle at a wedding in a town called Cana. And they've run out of wine. Now, the celebration for those cats, it lasted a couple couple of days even sometimes. And so, you know, serve the good stuff. And then when they start getting a little tipsy, take the good stuff because it's expensive and give them the cheap stuff. Well, it ran out of wine. And, and Jesus' mama knows, hey, my boy's got it going on. That's not in the text, but she's like, hey, go see him. And she's like, what's it got to do with me? It's not my wedding. What's it got to do with me? And so Jesus said, bring me some big, large water pitchers. Have them fill with water. And so Jesus turns the water into wine. And they start drinking. And I was, whoa, wait a second. You, you're supposed to serve the good stuff first. And remember, I get all sloppy. You start serving the bad stuff. But you saved the good stuff till now. And so Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And he gave them the best stuff. Last. Right? Broke all tradition there, but Jesus turns the water to wine. Then some crazy things start happening. People begin to believe in Jesus. But we learn something here at the end of chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, it says that many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, now this is key in the narrative of John. Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people. Wait a second. It says they believed. So we would call, we might say they're saved. No, they're not. It says here, they believed in His name, but Jesus did not entrust Himself to them. Why? Because He knew all people. Well, chapter 6 is going to show us in the narrative, these people who just want the wine, when He starts talking about eating His flesh and drinking His blood, leave Him. It got hard. The teaching got a little deeper. It wasn't pablum anymore. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to understand. And so they walk away and leave Him. The one who just took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 men besides the women and children. So possibly 10 to 12,000 people with two fish and five loaves. They saw the miracle and walk away. Why? Because they just want the wine, the fish, and the bread. Not him. And he turns to Peter. I'm way ahead of myself. Peter, you want to go too? Anybody knows Peter's response? I'm convinced this is where Peter really got saved. Where are we going to go? You have the words of life. I'm hanging with you. That's awesome. 
I'm not in it for the wine, the fish, and the bread, Jesus. I'm in it because you are the author of life. So Jesus doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows their heart. In chapter 3, we see Jesus has an incredible conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Never name your kid Nicodemus for all kinds of reasons. But this Jewish leader has a conversation with Jesus. And he wants to know who he is. And what we discover in this passage here is something really amazing. We discover as Jesus is teaching here, Jesus reveals to us in this passage how a person comes to faith. Nicodemus wants to know, who are you? What are you doing? And Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order for one to see and taste the kingdom of God, they have to be born again or born from above. And then Jesus describing what he meant preaches from Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Remember, Jesus never leaves the text. He never leaves the text. Jesus preaches from the Bible. And he tells Nicodemus from Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 what it means to be born into the kingdom of God. You must be washed with clean water. You must have a new heart. He's not talking about being baptized here. He says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, whoa, how can that happen? How can I crawl in my mother's room and be born again? He's like, dumb answer, dude. What are you talking about? And Jesus said, truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. This is the preaching from Ezekiel 36, that I will wash you with clean water and put my Holy Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my way. He's just preaching from the Bible. And the one who claims to be a teacher of the Bible doesn't even recognize it. What a shame. But Jesus says, you get into my kingdom, not by being born into it genetically as a descendant of Abraham, but you get into it through faith in me. I wash you with clean water and I put my Holy Spirit in you. The point, God does the changing, not man. People just receive the gracious gift of God to take dead people and make them alive. I've written these things to you that you might believe Jesus is a Christ and by believing have life. In his name. In chapter 4, John shows Jesus going cross cultural in order to model for us the need to cross cultures with the gospel of the kingdom, just like God promised in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, that all the nations of the earth would hear and believe. And how does Jesus do that? In chapter 4, Jesus crosses cultures by not only speaking to a Samaritan, which for a Jew, was considered to be an unclean, nasty, half-bred, worthless person. But he spoke to a woman who happened to be a Samaritan, modeling for us what he gave Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3, in the command to be a blessing that he, through Abraham, might bless all the nations. So Jesus puts it on display. And he preaches the good news to this woman, who's a Samaritan, at this well, She discovers Jesus knows everything. (laughs) She's trying to hide it. She's trying to hide the fact that she's a woman of ill repute. And there's some baggage in her background. And Jesus reveals that he knows. And she's amazed. And in doing this, Jesus intends to rescue the woman of Samaria from the curse of the fall and break all human traditions and values of a fallen world in favor of the values of God's kingdom. 
So Jesus crosses cultures in speaking the good news. And he rescues this woman and turns her into an evangelist who then goes to her village and introduces the whole village to Jesus. One of the sub feel, sub-feels, if you'll permit me to say, of this passage is Jesus takes the most unlikely and turns them into the greatest evangelist. The Lord never, ever, ever picks the superstar. Our culture values being a superstar. Jesus picks the Samaritan woman, changes her heart, and she goes and tells everybody back in the village about Jesus. And the next thing we see, the whole village is coming out going, where is he? And Jesus hangs out in that village. And in that passage, he teaches that those who worship God worship in spirit and in truth. And his salvation will be like physical water quenching physical thirst, spiritual water eternally quenching spiritual thirst. Then in chapter 5, John shows us that Jesus begins confronting the curse of the fall by confronting one of its chief symptoms in the commandments of men who've taken God's truth and manufactured an oppressive system. One of the most deadly things that happens in the curse is that religious people take God's truths and twist them into oppressive systems. Jesus confronts this by healing sick people on the Sabbath. He takes the authority as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus takes this authority as the one the Old Testament promises would come. By Jesus saying that He's Lord of the Sabbath, He's saying He's the one that gave the Sabbath. Which, by the way, all through the Gospel of John, John's emphasis on the deity of Jesus. John's John's emphasis is on His Godhood, as well as His manhood, but particularly Him being the God of the Old Testament. So Jesus takes that authority as the Lord of the Sabbath, And He releases them from man-made rules and laws. And He takes the authority as the Son of God who speaks what is true and who has life in Himself so that anyone comes to Him, that person will be saved whether it happens on the Sabbath or not. In chapter 6, John records Jesus putting His glory on display again by feeding 5,000 men besides the women and children. Again, perhaps ten to 12,000 people. Jesus also displays His glory again to His twelve disciples in that passage by walking on water and rescuing them from the rough sea. But remember, the crowd in chapter 2 who loved the wine and believed in the bread and the fish want to make Him king by force. And they're revealed as those who are false disciples and only interested in physical deliverance. And all they want Jesus for is what He can give them. Smells an awful lot alike Western evangelical Christianity. Jesus can give me heaven, but I don't want Jesus. I want heaven, I don't want the cross. Hmm. So when Jesus reveals that He's the real bread and the work of God is to believe in Jesus. He says the work of God is to believe in the one God has sent. And that they must consume Him to live. Many desire to walk away. And many, in fact, do leave. And it says that they never came back. 
And so Jesus declares in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not you. It's not the exercise of your will. It's not your flesh. It's not your heart. It is the Father who has planned to give you to me, awakening you to life. You believe in me and you will come to me because you want me, not what I can give you. See, the reason people in the West are so easy to leave the church in Jesus is because they were promised a bill of goods. You get Jesus, you get other stuff. No, you get Jesus, you get Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus is all you need. You see, the reason that stuff begins to fall apart is because it doesn't work in other places where there's nothing but Jesus. For so many Westerners, they've never traveled outside their continental 50 states and they think the rest of the world just ought to be like them and the harsh reality is it's not you live in disneyland the poorest among us is rich globally and for other places who have nothing but jesus jesus amazingly sustains and satisfies but for us jesus is a little boring Because Jesus doesn't really measure up to the cool ride at Animal Kingdom. And Jesus gave them a mansion. Why did He just give me an apartment? I must not be believing enough. Uh, No. Jesus, I am life. Come to me. Come to me. And I will be enough bread for you. I will be the bread that will sustain you. We have no physical bread. I will sustain you. I will keep you. I will take care of you. Jesus' teaching gets hard. And Jesus turns to Peter and asks him if he wants to leave as well. And as I said earlier, Peter replies, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's the answer. That's the answer we give. Lord, I have nothing. You and your grace have taken it all, but I have you. I'll be content. And in chapter 7... The Jewish leadership is trying now to kill Jesus because he set himself up as the source of life rather than be fitted into their false mold of a king of this world system. They wanted to be rid of the Romans. They didn't want God. They just wanted to be rid of the Romans. They didn't care who sat in that seat as long as it wasn't a bunch of Romans. Jesus' brothers even taunt him about going public because they don't believe as well. And as the tension about Jesus' identity gets more intense, Jesus declares out loud. He reveals himself. He finally, because his brothers go up to the feast, he stays behind and goes up secretly. And as the, and they're talking about it, who's this Jesus? Could he be the one? Is he the one? I don't know. Do you think he's the one? I don't know. Some people say this. Some people say that. What do you think? And Jesus comes out in public. He says, if anyone thirsts, or if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. Jesus, once again, boldly proclaims, if you're thirsty, I'm the source. And then he goes so far as to say, and as the scriptures have said, applying the scriptures to himself. Further identifying Him as the One. Because remember John's purpose. You want to believe 
that he's the one and by believing have life. And so John is further revealing Jesus' words, I am the one. But the people are further divided over Jesus' identity. Some say he's the Christ. Some say he's not. Some thinks he's crazy. In chapter 8, John transitions this chapter from chapter 7 to chapter 8 with an account of Jesus exercising his identity as the one who quenches the thirst of the thirsty when Jesus pardons and forgives the woman caught in adultery with the instruction to go and sin no more. I think what's absolutely fascinating about this passage is Jesus, when these leaders bring this woman who's been caught, it says, in adultery. That's kind of interesting, right? And so they bring her to Jesus because apparently she's been caught committing adultery. And it says Jesus bends down and writes. And then it says, you know, you know, he asks, well, which of you is without sin? By all means, be the first to cast the stone. And then nobody does anything. And he bends down and he writes again. And it says in the text that when they heard it. So at best, we're guessing what Jesus wrote. But obviously, he's writing something that they have to understand. Because John wants us to know they heard whatever Jesus wrote in the sand. And chances are, it's Deuteronomy 22, 22 that tells us that both parties caught are to be stoned, but they've only brought the woman. So you who are without sin cast the first stone. The clear implication is you've sinned by breaking the law because you haven't brought the other guilty party. So who's going to start stoning each other? And they all leave. Because they recognize they're all sinners. And Jesus looks in her and says, Who is here to condemn you? <laughs> and he says, Go and sin no more. Then Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world. You guys are darkness. You can't even hold yourselves accountable to truth. You are in the darkness. I, Jesus says, am the light of the world. And this declaration sparks a little bit of a controversy because the rest of the chapter is Jesus arguing with these people who are in the darkness. This religious elite who can't themselves even obey the law yet want to stone the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus teaches that these darkened religious leaders are from the world system and that the system CEO Satan is their father. Like it gets intense. Jesus says, you're from your father Satan who is a liar and the father of lies. When he lies, he speaks his native language. That's your father. We're, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, before Abraham was, I am. Boom! I predated Abraham. You're not my children. You don't belong to me. You're in darkness. I am the light of the world. Boy, Jesus is really setting himself up as God, isn't he? Yeah. And then Satan's minions try to kill Jesus, but we learn in the end of the chapter here that he hides himself and escaped their plot, which is pretty cool because he somehow, I don't know how you hide yourself from people about to kill you, but he does. He's God. He can pull that off. Kind of cool. Don't know if he like has a magical cloak that makes him invisible. Don't know, not sure how that happened, but he hides himself. They can't find him and he escapes their plot. And in chapter nine, John shows us again, Jesus glory. Remember? The Word became flesh, and we have seen His glory. In chapter 9, John shows us His glory again by telling us about how Jesus now encounters a man who's born blind. So He's been blind from birth. 
And Jesus corrects the false assumption that his blindness is due to his parents' sin. So the false belief was, if you're born with something, whatever it happens to be, it's because your parents are sinners and God's evening the score. Jesus corrects this and puts his glory on display as God by healing the man born blind and telling him that his blindness was for the purpose of putting God's glory on display in Jesus healing him. This is a great statement. No, no, no. I made you blind. You remember Exodus chapter 3? Like, Moses, I can't talk good, right? And God says, Moses, who made the ear deaf and the mouth mute? I did, Moses. I'll be with your mouth. I'll make it talk right. (laughs) Those are passages that are just beautiful. Because even in the curse of the fall, Jesus is in charge of the curse. That's why Aslan can break the curse at any moment. (laughs) Because Aslan rules his territory, right? And so even in the midst of the curse, Jesus says, I made you blind. You're blind so that I can heal you and everybody see my glory. Jesus takes dyslexic people and he puts his word in their mouth and they speak it. And he puts their eyes on pages so they can read it. No mistakes in the kingdom of God. Jesus is in charge of all. Psalm 139 even tells us that all of our days have been written in His book, yet before there was one of them. No mistakes in this room. Wired by Jesus, put together by Jesus for His glory. And we get this beautiful story of how that works. But we also see that the man follows Jesus. And he has some pretty sharp words for those who are questioning. Who did this? I don't even know who he is. I don't know. And it's funny, you don't know because he healed me. You don't even know who he is. What's wrong with you? And like, you want to be his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. And there's a little exchange and they throw him out of the synagogue. And then he finds Jesus. And Jesus and he have a conversation. And Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? In verse 36, he answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him, and it's he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And so the man born blind gets his sight and he gets life. And in chapter 10, Jesus teaches his disciples that he's the good shepherd. Which made a lot of sense to them, right? Anybody in here shepherds? Don't raise your hand because you're lying. Anybody here? There are no shepherds in the room, right? We don't shepherd any. Now, you may have some cows hanging out in a pasture somewhere, but there ain't nobody in this room sleeping out in the field with your cows and a stick or a gun to fight off coyotes. Coyotes are kind of a problem now, right? They're eating our turkeys, eating our deer, attacking cows. That's why you need a don- or mule. Mules like to take care of anyway, it's cool stuff. Anyway, no, no shepherds up in this room, I guarantee you. But in their culture, shepherds are a big deal because it's like, who's going to guard the sheep, right? Sheep are really vulnerable creatures, right? There's a great little book by Philip Keller. It's out of print, but you can find them used on Amazon. And it's a view of Psalm 23 from a shepherd's perspective. So it's like reading Psalm 23 from a shepherd. So this dude's like under shepherds, and he's looking at Psalm 23 from a shepherd's perspective. Because remember, David wrote that, and David was a shepherd, right? And so David understands the context. And David uses all this shepherding language in the Psalms, like, why is my soul cast down, right? Cast for a sheep means to be rolled over on your back and can't get up because they got all that wool on them. It's heavy. And I don't know sheep got little be skinny legs. They're chicken legged. So when a heavy, wet fur gets knocked over and they're laying there, bah, they can't get up. 
Because they're cast down. And David says, why is my soul like a wet sheep on its back can't get up? In other words, David's, I'm heavy. This, this is heavy. I'm like a cast sheep. I can't get up, God. What's wrong with me? So he uses all this shepherding language. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Right? You know the psalm. Jesus teaches us from this context, and they understood shepherding because they were still shepherds. At Jesus' birth, right? Jesus reveals, or Jesus' glory is revealed by the angels of heaven to a bunch of shepherds. They understand it. So Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm not like a bad shepherd who runs when the enemy comes. I'm a good shepherd. They're, oh, good shepherd. Good shepherd protects the sheep. Good shepherd's present. Okay, that's good. And Jesus teaches, He's the door. That sheep got to go through, so you got a pen, and there's one way in. Jesus says, I'm that way in. Making clear, clear teaching that He is the way into the pen of God. Jesus teaches He's the one that lays down His life for the sheep. He teaches He's the one who calls His people and they listen to Him. Sheep know the voice of a shepherd, and they won't obey the voice of somebody they don't know. Do you know that? Crazy. Jesus says, my sheep listen to me. Why? Because they're my sheep. They don't listen to the voice of a stranger because they don't know that voice. This is, listen, if you're in Christ, Jesus will talk to you and you can know Him. Paul calls that the witness, the testimony of the Holy Spirit. We just, we're, we're bad Christians and good Baptists. That stuff's too supernatural for me, too weird. Jesus said that's the way it is. My sheep know my voice and they hear me and they obey me. We, we got to know Jesus' voice. And He says, I'll be your shepherd. I'll talk to you and you can understand me. So if you come to Jesus, you believe and He gives you life, He gives you ability to know His voice so you can hear Him. So He says, my people are going to hear me. He teaches He's the good shepherd, He's the good father, and continuing to identify Himself as God. And the dark religious, dark religious leaders recognize Jesus' teaching as one that claims He's God. And then they try to kill him again, but he escapes their plot. Chapter 11, the scene shifts to Jesus' personal relationship, particularly with the sibling group of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus loved people deeply. He loved this sibling group deeply. And we learn that Lazarus has died. And Jesus delayed his going to his friends. And he tells us the reason why he delayed. You think, God, Lazarus is ill. Let's go help Lazarus. And Jesus doesn't do that. He stays longer and allows Lazarus to die. And Jesus tells us that he delayed his going to his friends for the purpose of letting him die so that he can raise him up, show his glory, and display what he's going to do in himself and proclaim in that passage that I am the resurrection and the life. As a matter of fact, we go to chapter 11. Jesus is having this conversation. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She already had an eschatology in place. That's not what you came to hear this morning, but... That's good nerd, nerddom. Her eschatology of last things was very clearly in place. She recognized the resurrection on the last day, which is where the Bible's teaching. But that's for a class, not here. But just so you know. She recognized it. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Had Jesus always brought people to a point of having to affirm or deny? Always. He's the best evangelist. Model that. Okay? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And we go on and we see Jesus call Lazarus forth from the grave and he gets up and Jesus' proclamation that he is the resurrection and the life is fully put on display and his glory is seen. John chapter 12 records for us now Jesus' anointing by Mary of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus at a dinner for Jesus. And it's perhaps a thank you dinner because Jesus had just done some pretty good doctoring. Now, I don't know about you, but raising somebody from the dead is some pretty dadgum good doctoring. And so they've held a dinner in honor of Jesus. And Mary, in honor and love for Jesus, not only washes his feet, which was customary, but she does so with some very expensive perfume. Like, I don't know what expensive perfume is. You know what I'm saying? But imagine expensive perfume. And she breaks it out and washes their feet, you know, their feet, like they don't wear like Nikes, right? They have sandals, Jerusalem cruisers, right? You got, and so their feet and dusty roads. And if you've ever been in a country where just things are dusty, right? Things get dusty. And you imagine walking in that with flip-flops, right? And so that's what their feet look like. And so they walk in the house and it's customary that you provide washing of feet for your guests. Mary does, does that, but she goes a step further and she uses a very expensive perfume. Jesus says to those in protest, because some have said, this is real expensive. We should have sold the perfume and fed homeless people. Which sounds noble. The problem is it's wrong. Because Jesus said to those in protest that Mary's actions are to prepare Him for burial. And that He's worth it. And you know why I said He's worth it? You're going to have poor people with you till the end of time, but I'm only here for a season. I'm worth your expensive perfume putting on display that He is worth sacrifice. What God has promised in the Old Testament, He's brought about in Jesus. And now Jesus is going to leave Bethany and enter Jerusalem for the last time. And He's going to proclaim that the Son of Man has to be lifted up. And when that happens, He is going to draw all people to Himself, speaking about His crucifixion. And then we move to John chapter 13. John has taken 12 chapters to tell the highlights of Jesus' deity revealed in his three-year ministry. But he's now going to slow down for the next nine chapters to tell us about the last hours of Jesus' time with his disciples, as well as tell us about the crucifixion and the resurrection at the end of those precious hours with his disciples. John records for us how Jesus sets for us the ultimate example of what leadership is when He makes the divinely good decision to serve, not be served. And He goes first in washing His disciples' feet and tells them that they should likewise imitate the example of servanthood that He has set for them. Imagine the eternal Son of God, the Creator of all the dirt that's on their feet. Now stoops, and he washes their feet for them. And and it's even so strange that Peter goes, Lord, you you shouldn't be doing that. And Jesus goes, Peter, if I don't do this, you have no part with me. 
And then Peter, like he always does, sticks his foot in his mouth. Then my whole head and my whole body. Jesus speaking figuratively, Peter, those who are already clean just need their feet washed. We're good. Jesus sets the standard of making good decisions by serving and going first and doing so. And John relays this is not so that we should practice the cultural need to wash feet. And some traditions do that, think this is a mandate that we should wash feet. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. But I think what Jesus is doing is that we should take the initiative to serve one another like the God-man, Jesus. Side note here, if you don't let people serve you, you can't be served. It is prideful and arrogant to not let people into your life to serve you. And I'm chief of sinners because I'm an independent cuss and I don't need anybody's help. And that's a lie from Satan and untrue. The reality is you isolate yourself from the body. It's a sin of pride. And Jesus illustrates here that we are to serve one another. And He sets the example of serving. And, and the arrogance is Peter going, No, Lord, I don't need it. Jesus is like, Yeah, you do. Oh, yes, you do. Sit down, boy. Jolly interpretation. I'm going to wash your feet, Peter. Listen, Three Rivers Church, Jesus set the standard of serving. That means we're to serve, but it means you are to allow yourself to be served. We have the false assumption that we're to keep up airs of strength, when in fact there's none of us strong. You don't know the end of your days. Mine could be this afternoon. I don't know where my end is or how. I need you, you need me. Jesus sets that example as the ultimate servant. And then He leaves them this new commandment. But keep in mind, this is not a new commandment. The language here in John 13 is sarcastic. Remember, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He gave them this thing called the law a long time ago. And you remember the summary of the law Jesus has taught us? Love God and love your neighbor. This is not new, love each other. This is just a restatement of what they're already supposed to know, love each other. The language is very sarcastic here because he's having to bring it back down to those who are just still getting it. And so just like he's been telling mankind from creation on, we as his ambassadors are to love each other and thus display that we're his people. And then chapters 14 to 16, Jesus has been testifying to everyone that he is the Christ. That He is the God of the Old Testament. He's the one who is to come. But now Jesus has finished off their last meal together in chapter 13 by telling them some pretty bad news. I mean, this is not the way I would end a celebratory meal. And Jesus goes, boys, i got to go away. I'm going to have to leave you. And then we come to chapter 14 and they are sorrowful. We just had a meal. You just washed our feet. What do you mean you have to go away? You feed us. You have the words of life. Are you not bringing the kingdom? Where are you going? Jesus promises He's going away to prepare a place for them. And he will come back and they will be taken to be at the place He is preparing. I know Thomas speaks up and he asks what everybody else wants to know. Lord, we don't know where you're going. You haven't told us. So how do we know how to get there? And Jesus' response is verse 6, Thomas, I am the way. 
I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then Jesus spends the rest of his time with his disciples instructing them about the Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus' very presence with them. And how, he says, in chapter 17, it is to their advantage that he go away. Because if he doesn't go away, he won't send the Spirit to be with all of them. I don't know about you, but if Jesus is here in the flesh, he's going home with me. And if you want to scrap with me, we'll see who can win. He's going home with me. But Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away, boys. Because if I go away, I will send the counselor to be with you. And he says in John chapter 14, I and the Father will come and we will make our home with you. And the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth. He will teach you of all things and remind you of everything I have taught you. He teaches how the Holy Spirit will work in the world and reminds His people that He has overcome the cursed world system. And He's about to prove it on the cross, in the tomb, and gloriously as He conquers the tomb. Then in chapter 17, John records Jesus' prayer for His people. It's the high priestly prayer, perhaps your Bible titles it. Jesus says expressly in this passage that He is not praying for the world but that He is praying for those that the Father has given to Him. Jesus reveals what eternal life is in verse 1 through 3. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. In other words, God's glory is put on display in the Son and in the Father at the cross. And God paying for Your sin and mine. So glory is put on display in that nasty, bloody mess of justice and righteousness and holiness. He says, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. Whoa, big deal. What is eternal life? Living forever? No. You're already going to live forever. Just know that. As an image bearer, you live forever. The question is where? Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the essence of the life John wants you to have by believing in Jesus is to know God and know His Son. And how do we know them? By the Holy Spirit's ministry, by continuing to reveal that. So the essence of biblical eternal life is to know God and know the Son, which is why we study our Bibles, to know God better and to know Jesus better. And by the way, you'll spend your life doing that. You won't arrive after taking one little systematic theology class. What you'll discover is what you don't know. And it's volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes. All it will do is reveal more questions you've got to go to Jesus for. To know God and Jesus Christ whom He sent. And that's what Jesus is going to purchase for us. Then John 18 to 19, He records Jesus' betrayal, His arrest, and His crucifixion. Judas betrays Jesus as the Scriptures foretold He would, we learned. This was written in the text. And Jesus refers to Him in the Gospels, that is Judas, as the son of perdition. That's pretty harsh. And Peter, although steadfast in his desire that he was going to stand with Jesus, even if it cost him his life, denies that he knows who Jesus is. Just like Jesus said He would. We see clearly that rather than the Romans and the Jewish nation being in control, 
Although given authority over this territory as the governing power, Jesus is in full control of himself. He even tells Pilate, you would have no authority had it not been given to you from above. Boy, that you can't say that unless you got some authority. You know what I'm saying? I know you can put me on the cross, but that authority's been given to you from above. You don't have it innately. It's awesome. Jesus is in full control of himself. He's in full control of the players and the unfolding drama that are accomplishing what he has planned in eternity past and weaving together providentially the events that will bring about the salvation of all who repent and believe. Jesus is in full control of the moment. He's sentenced, condemned to die, and then crucified on a Roman cross where he states emphatically at the end, it is finished. Jesus' battles with Satan and his minions have culminated at the cross that was looked forward to so long ago in Genesis 3 where the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent would strike his heel. The first gospel preached in Genesis 3 is culminated at this moment. The serpent Satan has struck Jesus' heel by taking his physical life. But Jesus has crushed the power of the enemy by taking on himself the guilt of mankind and the punishment that mankind deserved. And Jesus, being fully crushed by God himself, see Isaiah 53, that's another sermon in itself, dies as the guilty sinner, having taken on my sin and yours, so that God is just in punishing sin, and at the same time justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul puts it a lot clearer in Romans three twenty-one to 26. Let me read it for you. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins and was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That passage right there saved me when I was 20 years old. Being read out of the mouth of a man standing up front, that's the moment the Spirit of God invaded my life and changed me. That passage right there. And I believe He's able to do that this morning. Jesus hanging on the cross, now the guilty party of sin, so that by faith in Him, He pardons all those who believe in Him by giving them all of His perfection. Do you you understand the massive nature of what Paul just said in that passage? Jesus becomes the guilty sinner that we are so that He can hand out to those who repent and believe righteousness. So that practically speaking, God treats those in Christ as having never, ever sinned. While Himself taking on all our guilt. Which is why the Father had to crush Him, because God's just. And He's not going to let sin go. He punishes the Son. And then those who repent and believe, He lets go free. Isn't that awesome? 
So how do we obey this? Two quick points. If you're in Christ already, if you believe the gospel, be encouraged and lifted up by the marvelous recounting of Jesus' earthly work and rejoice that John's mission has been accomplished in you, that you have believed and you have life in His name. And your life now is to walk that out by hearing and obeying. If you're not in Christ... When I was 20 years old, I sat in that room as one who thought they were in Christ because I signed some card when I was eight to get out of hell. Because what eight-year-old wants to go to hell, right? No, thank you. What do I need to do? Sign this card? Excellent. So you could be like me. You, You were raised in church. You went to Sunday school. And you didn't hear the gospel. I didn't hear the gospel when I was 20 years old. Rome, Georgia. I did not hear the good news of the cross until I was 20. That's why we came back here. It's because I'm a product of sitting there hearing, don't chew, drink, and go with girls who do. If you don't do this list of things, you're a good Christian. Okay. Recognizing it's hard. Some of those things on that list are not here, but they're fun and what's wrong? Right? It was 20 years old before I heard the gospel. Maybe you're here and it's, you've not heard the work of Christ articulated. And maybe you have this morning because the Spirit of God has opened your ears and you've heard and you're like, oh crap, I just got saved. That's good news. Because I sat in the seat just like you when I was 20, heard that, and it invaded my life. And I've never looked back. And so maybe you're here like that. If you're not in Christ, I invite you to turn from the rebellion that kills and believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple. And if that's you, I'd love to chat with you. One of our pastors would love to chat with you. We'll be standing in the back and uh, you pick pick somebody. And if they're a three-year member, they can talk to you about Jesus. So pick somebody. And we'd love to share with you how to now begin following Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. as a lamp to our feet. As a light for a path. Uh, Father, thank you that uh, Jesus, um, by his work, has made way, had made a way for us to repent and believe. And so this morning, I trust that all that John wrote about Jesus, what he said under your leadership would be true that You wrote these things so that we could believe. So we've said those things. We trust it's gone out and you, Lord, Holy Spirit, can make it effective. And so that by believing, we can then have life. So I pray you make that effective. For those who have believed, cause that life to well up. That that eternal water that Jesus promised the woman at the well would well up in all of us to eternal life. We had tasted and drank from it and enjoy it. Following you wouldn't be a bunch of rules that are worthless, but... Life to your praise. Those who that message has just soaked in for the first time, make it effective. Override everything in them broken. Take away the blinders. Take away the deafness. Cause them to see. Cause them to hear and understand. Change them. Transform them. And uh, make it evident because they can't sit there and be silent anymore. 
Yeah, do that, Lord. We trust you with that. Pray you be glorified. Lord, I pray you put in the hearts of your people to sing to you. You command us in your word. It's not optional. Sing to the Lord. It's a command. It's not an option. So, Lord, give us hearts that want to obey this morning and that our song to you would be received by you for your glory and our joy.